And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a terrific week. Uh, great show for you today. I was joined by my brother, Brad Devlin. Always a great time talking to Brad. We talked about uh, Ukraine, Russia, and what's really going on on the ground over there. Um, we talked about uh, the poll that showed uh, that 70, you know, 65% of Democrats uh, approve of how Justin Trudeau handled the Freedom Convoy. Uh, troubling stuff there. And we talked about just the the American decline that we're experiencing more generally. I think you guys will like it. Uh, before I get to Brad, guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe. And if you are an iTunes user, please take a couple seconds uh, to leave us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right. Without further ado, the great Brad Devlin. All right, guys, we're here with my brother, Brad Devlin. Brad, how have you been, man? I've been good. Long time no see, brother. Dude, it's been a minute. So, look, <laughs> right now, I, I just checked before we hit record. On Twitter, the National Guard, Vladimir Putin, and Mason Rudolph are all trending. So, uh, unfortunately, that's how today's going. Sounds like a political Steelers fan's Twitter thread right there. <laughs> I, bet if, I bet if I checked my Twitter, it would be the same exact thing. And then possibly Aaron Rodgers as well. With, I mean, uh, with various edits of him in the black and gold, which would be fantastic. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I don't think the Steelers are going to give up like 17 first round picks for a 39 year old quarterback. But I mean, we could we could hope. Here's the hoping, you know, anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, dude, last night I was just so over all the Ukraine stuff. So I was just tweeting dumb stuff all night because I was just so tired of it. Like, man, I can't believe Aaron Rodgers invaded Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, you you tweeted something like, uh, "How how did Spotify let Joe Rogan invade Ukraine?" Aaron Rodgers just imposed new sanctions on Joe Rogan after he amassed a hundred thousand troops and in, in <laughs> Eastern Ukraine. Oh, Twitter. Uh, I mean, I still love yeah. it, man. Like, do you st- you gotta love Twitter though for what it is. Like, I mean, we we talk about how much we hate it, but I mean, we're still there. Like, we're still on Twitter hours a day. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a vice for sure. It's it's like, oh, I hate it, but I also love it and I can't look away. It's like a car crash on a freeway, especially yeah. in like times of crisis like Ukraine, where like once or twice a day, I'm definitely going to check out, you know, how Bill Crystal is melting down. <laughs> um, I'm definitely going to check out how David French is saying we're all Ukrainians now, which is like the dumbest, like the Ukrainians really aren't even Ukrainian to begin with. They're They're... <laughs> predominantly russian let's just throw that out there but yeah no i i love i love watching all that unfold <laughs> we're all ukrainians now what does that even mean we're all ukrainians like... it doesn't mean anything it doesn't it that's that's the funny part it doesn't mean anything it's 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 so funny too is there's there's always a complete mismatch we're, we're all ukrainians um we should do everything that we can to prevent a russian invasion of ukraine but at the same time no one's saying that we're gonna send troops there Who's saying that? They always tell this to you when you say, 
hey, you know, I really don't think the way that we're approaching this is a, a very sound diplomatic strategy. You know, this could actually escalate and lead to, lead to conflict. And they say, no one's talking about sending troops there. And it's like, well, if we're all Ukrainian, that would imply that uh, they should have the protections provided by, you know, American citizens. We should look at it as an attack on, on America uh, and American values. And so you're not going to send troops in, uh, in that situation. It never, you know, the, the, the rhetoric never matches the policy. And it's so funny, too, because the West spends a month talking about, you know, unprecedented consequences and massive sanctions. Uh, they shore up defensive agreements with allied nations. They reposition military assets to a more forward-facing posture, um, while thousands may remain on high alert, right? They, they put more troops in Poland, they put more troops in Romania, they put more troops in Germany, all to a regime that's singing this song that Russia must be prevented from enacting its schemes um, of oppression on Ukraine. And then they turn to you and say, there is no one credible and there's no credible evidence that anyone's talking about sending troops into, uh, sending troops into Ukraine if Russia invades. And it just it sounds so hilarious to me. Yeah, man. I mean, like, get, you know, get, at least at least during the Iraq war, like they lied about the pretense for a war, but they never lied about actually <laughs> being willing to send right. troops in there. It's like, uh, right. I mean, me I mean, I don't like it when the press and, and politicians gaslight us on any topic, but like gaslighting us on the use of the U.S. military is uh, I mean, that's some next. I mean, th these are human beings. We're, we're talking about here. I mean, these are men and women going into a war zone. So it's like, can we please not gaslight the American people on war? It seems, uh, seems a little dangerous. But let, let's just start. We have to start with uh, cutting through the nonsense because, you know, everybody on all sides of this, they're, they're really bringing out the worst possible takes um, left, right, and center. But, you know, you had a piece drop yesterday for the American conservative that lays out where Ukraine is at right now, the current situation. So, like, just so we're clear, where where are we right now as it stands? Yeah, so the what's caused a really big hubbub in the last 48 hours is that Russian President Vladimir Putin recognized the independence of two Russian separatist republics in the Donbass region of Ukraine. Um, he did this in his televised speech, or he, you know, he was, uh, the Duma, the Russian parliament, voted for this to happen uh, last week, right? They said, hey, yeah, you should recognize these republics. It doesn't seem like the West is bringing any serious diplomatic chips to the table. Putin sat on that for a week, consulted his uh, security council, essentially, and uh, then announced in this speech and a subsequent uh, decree that he signed that he was that Russia would be recognizing the independence of these two separatist republics that have been around since 2014. Right. This was a consequence of the Euromaidan protests that threw out a guy who was uh, the Ukrainian president who was pretty even handed um, in the way that he was trying to approach Russia and the West. Um, and so the separatists started to take the, the, those pieces of territory. Um, and, th and this is a problem because it narrows the diplomatic options available, um, right? Uh, a, a lot of the pieces focused on the Minsk II agreement um, and possibly a Minsk III agreement or uh, some sort of agreement where they recognize the official borders of these separatist republics in exchange for drawing down the troops and not invading, uh, you know, the, a, a large portion of eastern Ukraine, which the Russians with their current troop capabilities are capable of doing, but they're not capable of, let's say, marching on Kiev and then being able to hold that territory. They just don't have the manpower there to do that right now. Right. Um, well, they could. I so, mean, they, they, if they wanted to, they could take Kiev. But 
you know, economically speaking, I mean, Russia's economy is roughly the same size as the state of Texas, um, slightly smaller economy than Italy and Brazil, just to put that in perspective. So it's like, and Ukraine's huge. I mean, the, the country is massive. They they could theoretically, in they they could theoretically take Kiev, but they could never hold it. I mean, the Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky said a couple weeks ago that if worse comes to worse, he'll just open up the military weapons stockpiles and let the citizens take whatever they want. So, I mean, like if Putin marches into Kiev, it, I mean, it's just a, like an insurgent situation, and and citizens are going to start, and the Ukrainian military would would turn to guerrilla tactics to start just picking off Russian soldiers in the streets. So it's like, that's just not realistic. Putin doesn't have the money or the manpower for it. Right. So Putin certainly has the capabilities, right? The Russian military has the capabilities if they wanted to go on a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, then they would take a lot more than the 150,000 units that they've got stationed along the borders right now, right? So what all the, the restraints that you just laid out, Putin perceives those, right? He's acting rationally here. He sees that, okay, even if I were to flood the zone with more troops in order to take Kiev, then I would not have the local support in order to hold it for long periods of time. So that's just going to be, um, you know, and that's just going to turn into, as you said, urban guerrilla warfare, the kind of which that the United States faced for 20 years in Afghanistan and <laughs> the Russians before them in Afghanistan, and they're not going to be able to, to really hold that territory. Um, and the reason that I'm, I believe so strongly that Putin's not going to go forward with a full front invasion, you know, just completely try to walk, wipe Ukraine off the map and bring it under uh, the annexation of the Federation is because why would Putin, right, in a matter of two weeks, station 100,000 troops right on Ukraine's border and then slow roll 50 to 70,000 more units over the course of, you know, four to five weeks, a month to a month and a half? Right. Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense to me why he would do that. Why would he wait to let the West, you know, talk with Ukraine, shore up these defense agreements and try to speak with one diplomatic voice while moving, you know, various military assets into the region? Why would he give them the time to do that? Obviously, he's looking for a diplomatic way out of the situation, um, you know, rather than than a full on annexation of the whole of Ukraine. Yeah, and that's what makes Joe Biden's language even more bizarre. You know, he seems to be the only person on the planet who expects a full-scale invasion of, of the entire country. Um, I mean, not even Zelensky is talking in, in, in these terms at this point. So it's like, it, it's it's so bizarre to me. And, and it really all did come together last night and this morning. I think you really saw... Uh, what what the Biden administration was up to, because he goes on TV yesterday and blames Russia for high gas prices, <laughs> blames Russia for, uh, you know, shortages in stores and stuff like that, you know, disruptions of the supply chain. Um, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Joe Biden's approval rating is in the high 30s, low 40s. He needs a scapegoat for the horrific economy that his inept regime <laughs> has caused. And honestly, dude, war is kind of the only thing that could save his presidency at this point and give him a shot at reelection. And for all you guys at home that are like, Brady, come on, like the Democrat, the, the Democrats don't want mass death just to help them win elections. I mean, like, come on, guys, like, these are the same people. <laughs> these are the same monsters who slaughtered 10 civilians, including seven small children, because The New York Times said that Biden wasn't tough enough in Afghanistan. I mean, they're willing to axe kids to make Joe Biden's genitalia look better. So, like, there really is no bottom for these people. Um, there's no level, you know, there's no bottom to their degeneracy. I think, you know, I, I think this administration is, is 
rooting for a very poor outcome in Ukraine because it would distract the American people, or at least they think it would distract the American people from all his failures at home. Yeah, I mean, uh, a president who has low approval ratings, who seeks a war uh, so that uh, he shores up domestic support. This has never happened never. before. Brady, <laughs> you crazy man. Stop talking so crazy this morning. No, I mean, yeah, I think I think there's certainly a point to that, that, um, you know, Biden, after saying, you know, Biden, it's so strange. He has this these flashes of, uh, you know, I think they're a cold, you know, a holdover of his time in, you know, the Senate foreign policy apparatus during the Cold War, where he has this, these small little flashes of realism. And one of them was saying, hey, yeah, there might be a minor incursion by Russia into Ukraine. And that, I wrote at the time, was the right take that the United States should perceive a full scale invasion of Ukraine differently than. Russia, for example, recognizing the independence of the separatist republics. For example, Russia's attempt to essentially build a land bridge from Crimea to those uh, in the separatist republics by taking other eastern portions of Ukraine, right? These should be perceived differently. There are different levels of aggression going on here. And Biden talked about minor incursions, instantly was forced to walk that back because uh, the foreign policy uh, regime that acts on his behalf is a uh, liberal idealistic <laughs> hellscape um, that, you know, has has no realist inclinations whatsoever. And so uh, he had to walk that back. And now his line was yesterday, obviously, during his speech that Russia has already invaded Ukraine, which is just the dumbest line that you could possibly uh, bring out at this period of time, because if if Russia has already invaded Ukraine, and the United States and its Western allies are going to treat it like it has via, you know, massive sanctions packages and, you know, continuing to reposition various troops in the region. Well, then Russia might perceive it as, okay, we haven't invaded. If we're going to be punished like we've invaded anyway, then what's stopping us from just taking what we want of eastern Ukraine now? So I think Biden's comments yesterday actually uh, might become a self-fulfilling prophecy, as I say in that piece that I wrote yesterday, where Russia is kind of, Russia just kind of realizes, okay, we're going to be punished for this regardless of whether we go in or not. Um, right now, we have peacekeeping operations in areas that we have recognized as autonomous and independent, um, and have actively called on our military aid. Right? I mean, it was it would basically be like if we recognized Juan Guaido. As the you know legitimate ruler of Venezuela and Juan Guaido sought you know sought various protections um, and 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 aid from the U.S. government, which I don't think you know is is completely out of the question. We've certainly done things like this in the past, specifically during the Cold War era, as we were trying to contain and roll back communism. Um, so this isn't you know completely rogue regime behavior, but yet Biden went out and said that this was already invade an invasion. And so you're just continuing to narrow the diplomatic options at the table uh, for for a peaceful solution to this Ukrainian crisis. It's it's ridiculous to me. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like Biden's trying to speak it into existence. But I, I think it's just emblematic of what we've seen for the last year from the Biden regime generally. Every crisis they view as a messaging problem. I mean, there's another piece yesterday. I think it was in The Hill. Um, I might just come out this morning about how they're the Democrats are looking to you know, transition on their messaging going into the midterms. And it's like I, this this administration, that's all they care about. And I think part of it's because Joe Biden has Alzheimer's and isn't all there. 
Um, so it's the staffers who are all like third rate Obama staffers, you know, and uh, and that that's all they know how to do is do comms. So it's like every single person in this administration is operating the way Jen Psaki operates, where they're just trying to figure out how to spin things to help Joe Biden's approval rating go up. And I think with the whole, you know, uh, uh, you know, Russia's already invaded Ukraine and all this. And it's like I, Biden's just focusing on the messaging that he thinks will help him politically. Like, he's not even, like, addressing the realities on the ground in Ukraine. He's not—I mean, no other world leader, Macron and, and the Germans, and, and no nobody's speaking like this. And Zelensky isn't speaking like this. I think it's just that this administration, man, the Democrats, that's what they're—all they focus on is the messaging and the comms team. <laughs> they don't really care about the policy. They only care about their own political gains. Yeah, and, and you saw this, you know, I think a great— uh, to bring it back to one of the issues that voters actually care about, or at least the voters who listen to this podcast care about, right? We saw this phenomenon with with everything becoming, uh, I guess, the the public relationization, <laughs> if that's right. that's not a word, but I'm making it up, um, of our national politics. We saw this with the border crisis, right? Where the border crisis is, if you go and look up the uh, encounters on the southwest border, uh, it's a it's a chart that the CP uh, CBP puts out with updated figures every month. The border crisis is still under full swing, but no one's talking about it. Why? Well, because the media helps helps the Biden administration in these efforts. And so Jen Psaki went out there, you know, May or whatever it was of last year, and said, you know, it's not a border crisis; it's a border challenge. And everyone just kind of shook their heads <laughs> and said, okay, we're moving on. I mean, yeah, this is this is the type of, of uh, this is the type of, of politics that we can expect from, you know, this <laughs> I, I guess you could say Gen X and millennials moving forward. I mean, this is exactly the type of politics that they're all that's all that they're trained for. Right. I mean, you have like the U.S. embassy in Kiev tweeting memes as like clapbacks to Vladimir Putin's address to the nation. And it's like, how stupid are you people? Yeah. This is absolutely ridiculous. One of the things that you saw, right? You mentioned uh, Macron, you mentioned uh, Germany, right? The German chancellor, uh, Mr. Scholz, uh, came out after Putin, or he didn't come out and say it, but um, uh, according to the Kremlin, Putin notified Scholz and Macron that he would be recognizing these republics uh, these separatist republics prior to his televised speech and signing of the decree. And Scholz replied and said, hey, listen, that that is a serious problem because it it, you know, means that we're not going to be able to pursue a Minsk, you know, a reinvigorated Minsk II protocol protocol. Um, and so I think that that was a sound and prudent thing to tell Vladimir Putin. Hey, this is now a, a diplomatic option that is off the table. The Americans don't seem that they want to offer any sort of moratorium on um, U Ukraine membership for NATO. So what are the solutions available to us? That's the smart way to be responding to these situations. They didn't say we refuse to negotiate with the Kremlin. Would they still vote, you know, voice their their support for a diplomatic solution here? Um, and so the Germans and the French are going about it in a more prudent way although not the most realistic way, but a more prudent way um, than than the Americans right now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And uh, before we move on, I I do have to point out, I do have to call out some, some people, even people that, you know, we're both anti-war. You know, I'm a libertarian, you're more of a, a populist conservative, or I don't want to speak for you, but at least from your writing, that's what it seems like. Um, no, I mean, pop, populist paleocons. 
Yeah. I'm not going to be mad at that at that characterization. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of folks that agree with you and I on foreign policy, because we're pretty close together on foreign policy, they, they, they really need to stop with the the who cares about Ukraine, LOL, takes. Like, it, it's, it's especially bad from my fellow libertarians, by the way. So, you know, I'm giving you a free pass to make fun of libertarians today. But, like, yeah, man, like, of course— the, under no circumstances should the U.S. military be involved in a war between socialists and communists <laughs> or fascists and communists in Ukraine. But my goodness, guys, can we stop with like the dismissive LOL who cares stuff? I mean, like, dude, babies are going to die. I mean, women and children will die. You know what I mean? Like bombs will be dropped. People are shooting AK-47s at each other right now. There's going to be a lot of stray bullets that hit babies, okay? So let's not—can we please stop with the, the who cares about Ukraine takes? Like, of course I care because I'm not a sociopath, and you, we should absolutely be praying for peace, um, praying for the, the innocent civilians. Um, it's just—it it really bothers me when I see people that, that agree with you and I on foreign policy just go way too over the top. <laughs> you know what I mean? They go way too far— when it looks like a war breaks out, oh, who cares? It's not our problem. Yeah, I know it's not our problem. No, I don't want the American government to get involved. But my goodness, guys, can you at least say a prayer for the children? My, my goodness, and stop being so dismissive. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a uh, – <laughs> uh, you can round the edges of the square by saying, listen, you know, this is none of the United States' business. Um, but generally, you know, the United States should uh, – be cognizant that that war can often breed instability in other places. It doesn't mean that we should go around being the world's policemen. No, absolutely not. Like from my writing, I'm very clear about that. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you you can definitely have some empathy for these people who, um, you know, regardless of where they'll end up, you know, they're they're going they're going to they're going to have a, a hard road ahead for sure. Um, I, I think I think some of the people who are saying that tactfully um, are doing so to shift the Overton window away from the traditional regime line that we're saying. But there are some people that are just legitimately not cons not only not concerned, um, they're, they're just, they're, they're not concerned not only about, you know, uh, I don't want to say like the fate of Ukrainian democracy because it's really a fake democracy, right. but they're not concerned at all about the prospect of conflict in the region. As long as the United States out of it, it stays out of it, they're fine with that. And it's like, no, actually, we don't want conflict uh, in Eastern Europe, because inevitably that will take valuable diplomatic time and resources uh, by the United States away from where we need to be focused right now, which is the Indo-Pacific. Of course. Of course. And uh, I, I will say one white pill is that in, in, I, the right generally has gotten so much better on foreign policy over the last handful of years for a lot of reasons. Um, and, you know, just seeing the vast majority of right wingers just absolutely reject the notion that we should be sending troops to Ukraine is, is you know, encouraging, obviously. Um, Republicans have gotten so much better. I mean, they've moved, I mean, goodness. I mean, look at the state of the GOP on war even 10 years ago. You know, it's a night and day difference, which is a huge white pill for me. But there are, <laughs> I mean, in both, you know, the right and the left, there are those holdouts, you know what I mean? That's those neocon holdouts that just can't let it go. And last night, the Washington Post... <laughs> Ran a piece. I didn't even look up who wrote it. I didn't even click on it. Just the headline. Just I. It just my brain exploded. <laughs> the The piece was titled "Quote: In the long run, wars make us safer and richer." 
by the Washington Post. So, Brad, I'm just gonna, I mean, I'm just gonna set you. I'm here. The ball's on the tee. I, there you go. I backed away. Just take take a swing at that one, my friend. War makes us safer and richer, says the people who have not actually had to live yet in the throes of the American decline, right? I mean, these are the people who can pay for fancy apartment buildings in Washington, D.C. that have their own security and are far away from any of the homelessness encampments and problems and crime that uh, are infesting our imperial city right now. I mean, I'm looking outside my window and I can see remnants of it. There's a little tent out there. Um, it, you know, here, here in the, in the Imperial city. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. It's absolutely terrible. The, these people don't recognize, uh, at all the state of decline that we're in. And the state of decline was brought about by active policy choices by people like them. And they refuse to acknowledge or reconsider that, Hey, maybe they were wrong. And even the classical liberals, right? Like you listen, you hear people like Barry Weiss, right? I think an opinion, uh, a, that my friend and editor Helen Andrews has expressed multiple times is that too many classical liberals go out there and say that they were betrayed by the progressive left or this left that is currently in charge of the American regime. When in reality, they have to be they have to be uh, cognizant that they were wrong about liberalism, period. Um, so, yeah, wars don't make us richer and safer. Let's 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 figure out what what's happened over the past 20 years as we've pursued pointless wars, endless wars in the Middle East. Um, we've spent over two trillion dollars in Afghanistan. We spent over two trillion dollars in Afghanistan alone. Uh, did that make us richer, Brady? Did it make us safer by the creation of endless amounts of of terrorist groups, um, not only in Afghanistan after we withdrew, but even prior to that by toppling Saddam Hussein? Right and, and mismanaging uh, the the reconstruction of Iraq in the way we did uh, by basically telling everyone who was involved in the Baathist army that they will never have a chance at uh, at making a living ever again. Did that make us safer? Do you think that our actions actually uh, undermined our national security by encouraging people to find work in terrorist organizations? I mean, this is ju it's just disgusting, top to bottom, because they haven't actually had to live in the American decline. They haven't had to live with the consequences of globalization. They didn't send a kid to die in freaking sand dunes in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East, in the Middle East right? And I hate when people, t I, I say this time and time again, and people say, well, that's, you know, that's a fallacy saying that you wouldn't sacrifice your son for war, or if you don't have kids, then you should shut up about war. And it's like, no, actually, in the entirety of human history, the prospect that you could lose a son or daughter, um, obviously son in this case, because I, the 21st century is stupid. We send little girls to war. Um, but the prospect of you losing a son in a war actually made you more hesitant to go to war with a rival nation or tribe or faction or whatever, right? Uh, and, and people are like, actually, no, like, I don't really subscribe to that anymore. It doesn't really matter to me. And it's like, ah, the, the, it just reeks of terrible, terrible elitism that has come to define, uh, uh, the way that, that this country is headed. Yeah. I mean, that piece, uh, I mean, it's like, did the CEO of Halliburton write that headline? <laughs> I mean, it's like, wars make us safer and richer. I have to say my, my favorite example of, uh, wars. Right. The Washington Post, the Washington Post <laughs> brought to you by Lockheed Martin. <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite example of wars making us safer and richer was when the Obama administration spent tens of billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money to fund al-Qaeda 
<laughs> in the Syrian civil war because he decided that he really wanted to get rid of Bashir al-Assad for some reason. So yeah, finding Which Al-Qaeda. Bashir, Bashir al-Assad, okay? Tulsi Gabbard is right about Bashir al-Assad, folks. Yes. Let's get this straight, okay? Bashir, she's right about Bashir al-Assad. She was right about Saddam Hussein. These are leaders who are covering up clearly, as we've seen from their removal or attempted removals, uh, covering up a dumpster fire. Uh, through, yes, uh, pretty strongman authoritarianism, but covering up a dumpster fire that, that spreads all over the world, right? Eventually, that, that, that conflict led to a massive migrant crisis that is now turning Europe uh, into not Europe anymore. So yeah. this, is, this is a massive problem that, that people fail to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the Assad stuff was always so transparently ridiculous. I mean, he's a, I mean, a bad guy. I'm not defending Bashir al-Assad, but... You know, he's a secular dictator. All he cares about is power and money and, you know, staying alive. Uh, I'm not sure why we thought siding with al-Qaeda was the prudent... (laughs) Hey, man, at least Assad, like, shaves his chin and wears a suit and stuff like that. We're, you know, we're funding, like, literal terrorists to fight Assad. But anyway, we we go down there. Well, right, right, because because (laughs) the strat... Right, yeah, just real quick on the Assad thing. Right, because the strategy then became, okay, we'll get rid of the secularist dictator. Now we need to find a secularist extremist slash you know, uh, uh, rebel group. And it's like, oh, those don't exist in the Middle East. How did we not see this coming? Uh, Yeah, just the whole thing is so stupid. Yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, Before I let you go, I have to talk about uh, this new poll that that came out yesterday morning. Um, I'm not overly surprised at this, but it is troubling, and we should mention it, that uh, 65% of registered Democrats approve of Justin Trudeau's handling of the Freedom Convoy. Um, I mean, that look, that's 65 percent of registered Democrats saying that they do not believe that Americans should have freedom of speech or freedom of assembly. They believe that if you speak out against the federal government, you should be beaten, trampled by horses. Your property should be seized. Your bank accounts should be seized. Um, I mean, yeah, man, I mean, 65 percent of Democrats believe that if you oppose leftist politicians, I mean, your, your bank account should be frozen. You should starve to death. So, um. I mean, what, we're now five years after uh, uh, our boy uh, Jesse Kelly wrote that piece about um, <laughs> a national divorce. Um, I mean, this ain't sustainable, brother. I mean, 65%, my goodness. I mean, all it took was a virus to make the Democrats hate their own God-given rights. Yeah, I mean, well, this is what happens when secularism takes over large portions of your society, and then you believe that uh, death is the worst possible situation, you know, the worst possible thing that can happen to somebody. And right. listen— Death is pretty bad, but their uh, damnation of their eternal soul in hell is something that I I wake up in the morning and I'm a little bit more concerned about. Um, So, yeah, so so this shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, a year ago when I was coming on this podcast, you know, it's been a minute, as we said in the opener, but we were talking about the inevitable siphoning of society, that conservatives have to be prepared for exactly this moment, right? Where, oh, GoFundMe is now not uh, going to take your donation and give it to the cause that you said you wanted to donate it to, but instead is going to seize your money and give it to organizations like Black Lives Matter who can go on burning down your cities and then paying for the bail for people who do, right? We talked about this, that that ultimately the solution is not to build your own YouTube or Facebook or whatever, right? You just – there's – economies of scale problems and barriers to entry problems that we face, but we do have to be ready somewhat, right, to build institutions 
on our own. And, and because they're, if we don't uh, actively prepare for the siphoning of society in this way, um, they're going to do it for us, right? It's not the ultimate answer, but it's part of uh, extending the longevity of the window that we have to take back this country. I think it's, I think it's, it's something that's incredibly important. And listen, this shouldn't come as a surprise either, because guess what? A lot of Canadians felt the exact same way. Canadians are much more similar to your average de- you know, Democratic voter. Um, even the truckers who were involved in the convoy made up a very small minority of truckers, right? Like somewhere around four-fifths and upwards of four-fifths maybe of, of Canadian truckers actually followed the vaccine mandates, right? A large portion of Canada's population was going through with these vaccine mandates. And uh, yes, you know, the, the Canadian truckers were unbelievably successful at changing um public opinion about coronavirus lockdowns, about vaccine mandates, and some of the provinces in Canada had to walk that back. Um, but still, I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a small majority, you know, a small minority of people. Um, and, and, you know, this is what happens when, you know, you have people buying into the Rousseauian ethos that, that says, you know, who, who cares if, if a majority really oppresses, you know, minorities in this way. You know, this is this is exactly this is exactly the problems with, quote unquote, pure democracy that all of our, you know, liberal regimes across the world are pursuing right now that that Adam or that uh, Madison outlined in Federalist 10. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't have to convince me to hate democracy. I think democracy is unadulterated evil. Um, But that's that's where I'm at. But where I I bet the authoritarians in America, um, whether it's coming from the Biden regime or whoever, um, I bet they were pissed off that the Canadian that go that GoFundMe and the Canadian government uh, tipped their hand um, and started freezing accounts and stuff like that. I, I, I think that I think they they uh, they they jumped a little too quick. I bet, you know, the the authoritarians here would have loved to keep that one close to the vest and really hit us with it when it counts here in America. Um, I think that maybe they uh, they jumped off sides a little bit and gave people. I mean, you, you have you know mainstream Republicans talking about how we need to uh, uh, create our own financial systems and stuff like that. I mean, not not like your your radicals like you and I, just your average everyday, you know, Mitt Romney types are like, all right, this could become a problem. You know what I mean? Like we need to figure this out. So I think I'm glad they tipped their hand there. Um, it may have uh, given us a little bit of time to help to figure that out, but like. You're, I think you're absolutely right that this highlights that the window is closing in terms of retaking our country and, and stopping the uh, atrocities that, that the left would love to impose on us. H- how long is that window in your mind? I mean, there's no way to tell, and we can just look back at this in a year and laugh probably one way or the other. But like, I, I, I'd say— it's it's shorter than you think. Like I, I really think if we do not start hammering out some of these issues in the next three to four years, it's going to be too late. I, I really think that we're going to see history speeding up pretty fast here in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, I think the right has really, you know, one presidential term to really make an impact to turn the tide. That's what I that's what I think. I think the Republicans have one more shot at achieving a real majority in government um for for the country to be completely lost that doesn't mean that the republican party will hold power no but america will not be the same um 
and so yeah, that I mean that's why this this conversation about national divorce, which I don't you know I don't subscribe to a national divorce, but that's why this conversation is becoming all the more common. I'm you know with people from the Claremont Institute. You mentioned Jesse Kelly, who wrote that piece a long time ago. Um, it, it's it's been definitely a topic of conversations I've had um, at, with various friends here in Washington D.C. Um, and that you know that's something that was unheard of you know just a few years ago. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that we have really one more presidential uh, term to really punish these institutions of usury, to really punish the institutions that have taken advantage of the American Republic for so long, to really punish the institutions that have actively sought to bring about the American decline um, yeah. uh, before before really what we know and understand as America uh, becomes you know, nothing more, nothing more than a myth. Um, and that doesn't mean that that myth can't be useful. Um, and that you shouldn't hold on to that myth and you shouldn't love your country. But yeah, I, I, I'm worried about the time frame as well. And I, 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 it's funny that you mentioned tipping your hand, right. You know, uh, or the Canadians tipping their hand. I, I kind of had the same reaction that this was something that, you know, the U S government didn't do broad scale. They did it to certain people, but they didn't do it broad scale to people who were involved in January 6th. And I think looking back, if Joe Biden and his administration um, had seen that, oh, the Canadians are going to use, you know, these powers that we've kept close to our vest for now against some truckers honking in Ottawa uh, and, and revealing, you know, the ultimate, you know, our ultimate, ultimate playbook, then we should have just gone forward with it with the January Sixers, right? And obviously the January Sixers have been treated terribly. I mean, again, these are defendants. These are criminal defendants. Right. They, they might be they might be proven guilty. They might have some sort of plea deal. But the, right now they're in pretrial detention and they're essentially in solitary confinement. It's absolute. It's an absolute travesty. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that if Joe Biden knows what he knows now about the Canadians, you know, kind of saying the quiet part out loud or doing, you know, doing the sneaky stuff uh, right in front of your face, then I think that uh, they would have treated January Sixers a whole lot tougher, you know, already tougher than the, you know, extremely tough uh way they've been treated already yeah i mean and you're you're absolutely right and i uh yeah I, it, these primaries coming up these republican primaries really matter uh they matter more than than republican primaries have in a long time in my opinion um gop voters really need to get some of these races right <laughs> they, they really need to because we need people that are going to be committed to tearing down these systems that are built to destroy us by us meaning the political right i mean we're talking about gutting the fbi we're talking about yep. gutting the atf we're talking about gutting these hell yeah brother <laughs> i mean they, they, and that, that's the thing and like i've i've pissed off i've lost a, a significant portion of my audience in the last several months because i keep telling republicans you cannot you got to get off the Trump train, brother. Like, it's just Trump, he had his chance, and he failed to do a lot of these things. I mean, and the, the, what really blackpilled me on Trump was when he went on Fox News and he talked to, I don't, I don't watch cable very often, so I don't know the woman's name. She's that the broad on Fox News that always looks like she's about to cry. I can't remember her name. It was on a Sunday show. But anyway, Trump... Trump that doesn't really one. narrow it down. But, I mean, she but has, yeah, like, the real watery eyes lady. Mid forties, maybe I don't know. I whatever, but um, Trump goes on there, and she's like, "Well, why the heck didn't you fire Anthony Fauci for the year that you could have fired Anthony Fauci?" And Trump goes, "Well, the Democrats would have been mad at me." I'm like, "Huh? Well, that, that's a coward right there. <laughs> that's uh, where I come from in uh, Toledo, Ohio. You, you call guys like that a word that 
starts with a B and it's five letters long. I mean, that's I mean, that's absolutely unacceptable. Um, you know, you need you need somebody tougher than that. You need somebody that can actually do the right thing, even if, quote unquote, the Democrats would have been mad at me. It's like, bro, they impeached you twice for no reason. <laughs> like, come on, really? Like you're you did you let you handed the power of the federal government to a five foot tall Italian dictator who doesn't know anything about medicine because you were scared that the Democrats would have been mad. It's like, oh, my goodness. Like, you need somebody better than that. And, like, in, in all of these races coming up in the midterms, man, like, I, I typically don't endorse a whole lot of, like, you know, primary, you know, Republicans in primaries, but I'm, like, throwing that out the window this year. I'm having uh, Joe Kent on, on Monday. I'm going to endorse him and, 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 and try to help him out the best oh, I can. I, God I, bless you. Yeah, man, yeah no, I, I was just going to I was just going to name drop a few candidates. J.D. Vance, you know, Joe Kent. Yeah, I'm not Anthony a J.D. Vance. I, I'm a Gibbons guy in Ohio. Okay, well, you can, you can, you can, we can agree to disagree on that. But (laughs) JD, and from my perspective, JD Vance, Anthony Sabatini, Joe Kent, these are the guys that you really need to be paying attention to because they're talking in ways um, that will actively, you know, pursue punishment for the liberal Leviathan that has uh, enacted just immense amounts of suffering on this country for the past, you know, since really the fall of the Cold War, even before that, but really uh, escalated since the fall of the Cold War, right? We had our hegemonic moment. We failed miserably because these are the people in charge. Um, and now we are a rapidly declining empire. Um, and, and you know, these people need to be punished and held accountable for what they've done to this country. And the way that you can hold them accountable is by electing people who won't go along with the party line, who won't be a good little backbenching Republican, but who is willing to piss off Fox News, right? Yes. By saying, by saying, hey, Actually, let's uh, let's just tax the hell out of the endowments of these of these, uh, you know, universities. Uh, let's let's go after uh, big corporations like Amazon by, I don't know, for making them pay, you know, Amazon on its own, basically making them pay for a tax that uh, to fund the, you know, the protection of U.S. Uh, or of international waterways for trade by the U.S. Navy. Let's 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 put a tax on them for that. This isn't going to be on your you know small business or corporation. If, even if you import stuff from China or whatever, right? They understand that. But the, you know, Amazon is is sending ships, you know, tons of cargo ships every single day across across the uh, the world, and the U.S. Navy has to protect them. So let's do stuff like that. Let's really get into figuring out how we can curtail the power of the big four in big tech. Let's really get to the bottom of of curtailing the power that leftists have over our children's education from preschool all the way through college. I don't know about the tax. I don't know. Anytime you mention a new tax, my blood shoots out of my eyes like Joe Biden. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I these th- are just, this is, I mean, again, this is, this is part and parcel of the problem. It's that like the mechanisms, and this is why I think the work American compass is doing is so important is that, is that we, we only have a limited number of mechanisms available to us right now. Right. What are the mechanisms that we need to devise? Are there other ways to punish these corporations uh, other than taxes? Right. How, how do we hit them where it hurts? Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of room. I'm not saying I'm the guy who is the creative policy guy. I'm a writer. I report things. I make sure that the public has the information that they need to know. Um, but again, you know, finding ways to punish these institutions is 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 key. Um, and I don't want to speak on 2024 yet because I think that, you know, we're in this time warp and 2024 seems like it's eight years away right now. Um, but 2022, yeah, these are the guys that you should be looking out for. 
100%. Brad, my friend, thanks for doing this. Let's not uh, wait another year before, before doing another podcast. Where can everybody uh, read your stuff and keep in touch with you and all that? Yeah, so Bradley Devlin, the staff reporter at the American Conservative. You can find me on Twitter at Bradley Devlin, and you can find me on Instagram at the Brad Dev. Everybody follow Brad. He's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Thank you.